Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're going to look at Bechukotai, uh, and it is a biblical, stylistic, literary device, what we're looking at. That's important to remember. This is a literary device that is used in the ancient world. Um, we have blessings and we have execrations. <clears throat> execrations. Hmm? We have blessings and we have execrations. So both are true um, in the ancient world. That when you recite, so, you know, if then, if you do X, then Y will be the result, bless you, then um, you, you have unleashed the forces, you, you unleash the reality that now is going to be in effect when you get the condition if. Whatever comes after the if. So when you recite a blessing, you have set up a system in the, you've, you don't set it up, God sets it up. You arm, right, the lasers that, you know, go everywhere so that when someone crosses that laser beam, it triggers the blessing. The same thing is true if what comes after the if is something not good. That if you do X and it's something not good, then Y is going to happen, and that's going to be a consequence. So both are motivational in the ancient world, right? Both get to the, the real purpose, which is to motivate behavior or to limit behavior. So, bless you. So we, in the modern world, tend to see things and say, wait a minute, I don't believe that about how the universe is put together, about God causing these things to happen. So that is perfectly reasonable and good and wonderful. Um, We also just need to treat this text in its own context and then figure out what about this, what from this we want to take with us. As always, that's our job. Um, And I've brought for you, we're going to spend a lot of time in other people's renderings of this text um, because I think it's really important to see how that's done um, with integrity, with real integrity, about the the ultimate meaning of this that is timeless and eternal. Um, It is not the theology that's timeless and eternal. Uh, Mordechai Kaplan said that that uh, what we have as a people is an evolving religious civilization. That's the definition of Reconstructionism. We are an evolving religious civilization. And evolving means it changes. And so Kaplan said you can't ever locate the consistency across 3,000 years in Jewish theology. It's impossible because Jewish theology has continued to evolve over 3,000 years. And that is not consistent. So how we would look at the theology represented here and compare it to our own, we're going to see a very big gap, a very big evolution, a very big difference. And for Kaplan, he really celebrated that, right, and wants us to be able to celebrate that. That means, however, that we need to root ourselves in the, you know, worldview of the Jewish people uh, and see what what it means for us today. So we're going to look at chapter 26 of the book of Leviticus. We are coming to the end of Leviticus. Thank you. So we are closing out the book of Leviticus. We are closing this whole set of instructions for the priests, for the people to know what the priests are supposed to be doing. Uh, We're closing all of that out. That's what this is. This is the seal on everything that's gone before it. All of the instructions, right, about how to live in right relationship with the godly 
force in the universe. This is what caps the whole thing. All right, somebody read at three. If you follow my laws and faithfully observe my commandments, I will grant your rains in their season so that the earth shall yield its produce and the trees of the field their fruit. Your threshing shall overtake the vintage and your vintage shall overtake the sowing. You shall eat your fill of bread and dwell securely in your land. I will grant peace in the land, and you shall lie down untroubled by anyone. I will give the land respite from vicious beasts, and no sword shall cross your land. Your army shall give chase to your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall give chase to a hundred, and a hundred of you shall give chase to ten thousand. Your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will look with favor upon you and make you fertile and multiply you, and I will maintain my covenant with you. You shall eat old grain long stored, and you shall have to clear out the old to make room for the new. I will establish my abode in your midst, and I will not spurn you. I will be ever-present in your midst. I will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am your God who brought you out from the land of the Egyptians to be their slaves no more who broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Okay. So this is the blessing, right? This is the blessing of what it means, if you walk in my laws. And if you observe my commandments. This is what will happen. And this, of course, is the list of everything that you would want to imagine in the ancient Near East. (laughs) Sounds awfully good. Um, These are the concerns of the ancient Near East, right? So it's it's an agrarian society at this point. So agriculture is critical to survival, right? It is your wealth. Your material wealth was built on on agricultural, what do you call it, surplus, right? If you have enough to eat, that's fine. But if you have more than enough, then you sell it, right? And now you have wealth. So agriculture wasn't just that you, were, you would be fed. It's that you would, you would have material wealth and comfort, the ancient Near East was constantly, constantly at war. There are periods of peace, and then something happens in the region, and it causes a domino effect, and everything, sh- every peoples start to shift. And when that happens, that means war. Plain and simple. So the the big fear is is famine or a lack of right agricultural produce, drought all kinds of things that destroy crops. The fear is from, um, from enemies that would conquer your cities, your territory, because if that happens, it's, I mean, it's over, right? So it's not only you, it's your children. Your children are carried off in war as slaves. And we know what happens to children as slaves. So, um, so these are the, the basic fears that, that motivate and the basic rewards, right, that motivate a society in, in the ancient Near East. So we, it's, it's beautiful, like you said, beautiful language. I will look with favor upon you and make you fertile. You need children. You need people to work the land. You need, right, large families to sustain the community, and I will maintain my covenant with you. So we get et briti, vahakimoti et briti. I will continue to cause to be established my covenant with you. So this is language about God being bound in relationship as well. right? God is bound to the relationship and bound to these consequences as well. So lots of grain in storage. This is all the good stuff. This is all the good stuff. This is the good. And so my abode will be in your midst, right? Mishkoni betochachem. Right? My, my mishkan will be betochachem, will be among y'all. That's a good thing, right? God's presence among the people means what? 
That's a good thing. Well, there's good stuff. It means protection. God's presence, betochachem, among y'all, means safety. Let's be clear. It is about safety. In every way, safety. And I will not spurn you. I will be ever present in your midst. I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Because I am yud Here comes how I can lay down these terms, says God. What gives God the right to lay down these terms and expect them to be lived into? I took you out of the land of the Egyptians to no longer be slaves, to break the bars of your yoke. And this beautiful Hebrew word, um, mute, right? So... What a metaphor. This is one, one this is the only place we see this in the Torah. Um, this idea of of standing straight. Right? And we we know it from the liturgy, like bring us erect and straight to our land. Right? Um, but here's the only place we see it in Torah. So this beautiful can somebody fix the air, please? It's really cold. And I know that it's maybe set at whatever it's set at, but it needs to stop blowing. I know. It's just, it's just on or off in this building. It's, it's a travesty. But, um, so, so this is exactly what you want to have happen. This is the blessing. This is the big, formal, amazing recitation of if... We walk in God's ways. This is what we can expect. I mean, it just sounded like anything and everything you could want. Hundred percent. If you walk in ways of godliness, this is what will happen. And if you do not, now we get the execrations. They are longer than the blessing. They are detailed. They are terrifying. They are meant to be. So as we read it, we're going we're to like have all of our modern reactions, which is fine. Um, we have to remember this was intended to be terrifying. It was intended to instill fear. That was the intention. And it's, in that sense, extraordinarily successful, if you ask me. This is where the liturgy and the morning of prayer comes from? So we have, we have two... We have two versions of blessings and curses. One happens in Deuteronomy and one happens here. So it's the Deuteronomy text that we generally deal with with the Shema. Right? If you listen and essentially obey mitzvotai, all of my commandments. Um, this one is different and there's some discussion about <laughs> this one is a little better. <laughs> And then we'll see why. But um, yes. Do the rabbis discuss? I read this. I took you out of Egypt, and did anybody say what took you so long? <laughs> so that is not where we go for first. Um, and and every ancient Near Eastern set of agreements or blessings and curses that are dealing with a king and a conquered vassal king and vassal people in the ancient Near East, the king invokes why he has the right to demand this of the vassal king. For I came and I took your land and I spared your people and, and I blah, 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 and therefore you shall now do X, Y, and Z. So this is exactly that formula the radical move in the ancient Near East of the ancient Israelites is who is the king? God. That is a radical move. But the language, not but, and the language is the same as the language in the ancient Near East for all of these covenantal agreements. This is formulaic. When you're going to have a covenant, when you're going to make the agreement, this is the formula. And so the, the reconstruction Right? The, the revolutionary move is that it's I am yud hey vav hey. So the, in the imagination of the Israelites, God claims 
absolute right to their fealty because it was God, God's self who did these things for them. That is a big move, that there's no earthly power that has ultimate claim on their loyalty. It is, right, God. And the king would be very clear. If you do not pay your taxes, if you, do not, if you are found to be in alliance with any other king, here's what's going to happen. So this is absolutely formulaic. All right. So and and of course in the in the story itself in Exodus the question is what changed? Four hundred years, all of a sudden, God took note of the suffering of the Israelites. Right. So we have a whole discussion in the Midrashic literature, hundred percent, about all of a sudden. Mapiton. Oh, no. What now? What happened? Right? And, and there's lovely, lovely Midrashim. Very powerful Midrashim. I'll just quickly give you my favorite, um, which is that, that God intervenes, that God took note of the plight of the people, comes right after we're told that the people cried out. There was a tzaka, a, a, a loud, wailing cry from the people. And so there's lots of rabbinic writing about until human beings defy, you know, until human beings are outraged and lift up their voices to together, together to oppose oppression and, you know, to, to speak out against suffering, God can't do anything. God couldn't act until we cried out and then God could respond. Right then, the chemla, then the rachmanut, then the divine empathy and compassion could be ignited, but not as long as we're ready to accept the status quo. So there's some really beautiful that kind of you know of of literature and and philosophical reflection on what does it take to to shift empires of evil to, to shift the reality on the ground. 14. Somebody? But if you do not obey me, <clears throat> and do not serve, not observe all these commandments, if you reject my laws and spurn my rules so that you do not observe all my commandments and you break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will wreak misery upon you, consumption and fever, which cause the eyes to pine and the body to languish. You shall sow your seed to no purpose, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you. You shall be routed by your enemies, and your foes shall dominate you. You shall flee, though none pursues. And if for all that you do not obey me, I will go on to discipline you sevenfold for your sins. And I will break your proud glory. I will make your skies like iron and your earth like copper, so that your strength shall be spent to no purpose. Your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. And if you remain hostile toward me and refuse to obey me, I will go on smiting you sevenfold for your sins. I will loose wild beasts against you, and they shall bereave you of your children and wipe out your cattle. They shall decimate you, and your roads shall be deserted. And if these things fail to discipline you for me, and you remain hostile to me, I too will remain hostile to you. I in turn will smite you sevenfold for your sins. I will bring a sword against you to wreak vengeance for the covenant. And if you withdraw into your cities, I will send pestilence coming among you, and you shall be delivered into enemy hands. When I break your staff of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven. They shall dole out your bread by weight, and though you eat, you shall not be satisfied. But if despite this... You disobey me and remain hostile to me. I will act against you in wrathful hostility. I, for my part, will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your cult places and cut down your incense stands, and I will heap your carcasses upon your lifeless fetishes. I will spurn you. I will lay your cities in ruin and make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not savor your pleasing odors. I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled by it. And you I will scatter among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword against you, 
Your land shall become a desolation and your cities a ruin. Okay, so can I just say something? Yeah. I just created a little meditation space <laughs> in my house and I put incense in it. And I have a Buddha because I just heard about a saying that Buddha said, and I'm not praying to it, it's just my meditation space. But I'm like, oh my God, I should leave now and go and like take it apart. I know, right? We're good. We're good. It sounds like everything here is going on in the world right now. That's <laughs> scary. So, to me, the scariest thing is it says, You shall flee, though none pursues. Right. That always strikes me as. You shall flee, but none pursues. Right. You should be running away by your imagination. It always seems to me to be actually what is psychological. It so, makes sense to me if I substitute for God greater good, a force for greater good, and it's so relevant today because of global warming. A lot of this stuff could happen. Uh, Except the world, unfortunately, doesn't work this way, which I know the rabbis tried to talk about, because good is not always rewarded and bad is not always punished. Sorry to tell you that. But what is good and what is bad? In which world? Even, no. There's something in the Perkei of Vote that says it's beyond our understanding to explain the happiness of the wicked or the suffering of the righteous. Right, that's why I said We all know people, good people who have terrible things happen to them and apparently not so nice people have good things happen. So we have two, two things <clears throat> on the table, right? Our, our two responses, right? They were all, they were automatic, right? They were absolutely... <coughs> instinctual, right? I didn't even say anything and already here it goes, right? We have this response to this text. That is the point, P.S., right? The point was for the text to evoke something in the people who heard it. So it still evokes something in us. Right? We, we, we get it that there, this touches on what is true all the time. Is it terrible, terrible things happen in the world? Given that, human beings, because we are meaning-making creatures, try to figure out what is our relationship to the fact that terrible, awful, awful things happen. And so there, there's two things that, that I hear on the table. One is what Bert is saying, which is, we no longer, as progressive Jews or progressive people of faith, locate the causality in God, the justice in God. We, we don't, right? We don't say it's, it's justice, it's fair. If you behave you know, well and you're a good person, good things will happen to you and you'll live a long, healthy life. And if not, not. That's always been a problem. Theodicy has always been an issue, the defense of God, right? The defense of, wait a minute, he's seven. How do you explain brain cancer in a seven-year-old because they deserved it somehow? In the ancient Near East, the only way you could have a just God who's at the root of all of that is to say there was collective responsibility, not individual responsibility, which is where we get a little confused. So to your point, Bert, biblically, how do you answer the fact that some people are good and terrible things happen to them? Because there was a collective. It's not about the individual. That collectively, we've done something wrong, and so one of our seven-year-olds has a brain tumor. It is not an individual, right, understanding of direct cause and effect. It is communal. Bless you. So that's very Christianity. We haven't seen to it that enough research is funded and done for cancer, etc. So on the one hand, we have the whole issue of we no longer locate the cause or the you know the the effect of these things in God. We move to where Sarah is. The ways that this still means something and and makes sense for us and and engages us with deep truth is that if we shift the, lo- 
the location of the responsibility from God triggering the effects to humanity's behavior bringing upon ourselves these consequences, then it is 100% accurate to this day. Because we are putting all kinds of crazy things into the water and into our food, we have cancer at alarming rates. Some things are just going to happen because we're creatures, right? We don't agonize over why did that tree that's so young get root rot and die? We don't sit up at night wondering how and why it could happen that a tree planted in perfectly good soil didn't make it. Yes, we can, says Sarah. In general, we don't. What do we say it about? You know, what we value and what scares us. And and it's humanity. It's human beings. And so we change change the parameters, don't we, of the question when it comes to human beings. Now we want an answer for why it happens, right? It's the wrong question. Why is the wrong question for progressive people of faith? Unless we're going to look at why is it happening given that we could stop it. There are some things that there, why, the answer to why is because we're human. That's why. We get cancer. That's why. We're creatures of a planet and we are bound by the planet's rules of life. That's just how it is. And things go wrong. There is no why other than because we're human. If we want to locate why societally in terms of responsibility for those things that can be changed, then in progressive religious communities, we turn that question on ourselves. If we were walking in godly ways we would not be dumping things into the rivers. If we were living in godly ways, there wouldn't be five gyres, five huge islands of plastic in every one of the world's five oceans that are broken down by the sun. The the bags in the middle of the ocean are the size of the state of Texas, literally. And it is broken down by the sun into such tiny particles that the fish cannot distinguish those tiny particles from plankton and the ratio of plankton to plastic particles in the water is now at alarmingly dangerous rates so when the fish eat that what do we eat the fish are we shocked as we take pvcs into our bodies continuously are we shocked that the cancer rates have gone up that's one example Right? Who put those plastic bags in the ocean? It wasn't God. So for progressive people of faith, I think this remains incredibly important, this text. And it's scary, and it should be. We should be scared. I was just listening to a snippet. I don't get much time in the car, um, which is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. Um, and I don't get at reception in the canyon going up right to the house, which is probably a good thing. Um, but in this snippet of NPR, I wanted to pull over and like finish listening to the piece about you know the in Antarctica, the you know the ice shelf. It's too late for that ice shelf. It's too late. There's even if we got rid of every single automobile in the universe tomorrow, it's too late. That ice sheet is going to drop into the ocean, and it's going to raise sea level by four feet. What that's going to do to the planet, to people's weather systems, you know, to the daily lived reality of the ecosystem is really scary. And it's not slowing down. It's speeding up. That's one ice sheet. So that this was terrifying We understand that to locate that in God as the cause is not helpful. And that is not our theology, nor do we want to go anywhere near that understanding of the universe. And I believe at our peril do we ignore what this should elicit from us, which is a collective gasp of, uh uh-oh. Right? Literally, OMG. In the Hebrew, is uh, these... 
Is this in the singular or the plural? What? The you. Y'all. It's plural. Yes. So it's clearly addressed to the community. Clearly addressed to society, to the community. Pam? Um, it always stands out to me that the, the blessings are one thing, and that the curses can't keep getting seven times worse, seven times worse. <laughs> and uh, I always kind of think of if I have to wake someone up, I might come into the room with a sweetheart and wake up, and then if no raised reaction, maybe a little louder, maybe shake him a little, sweetheart, get up, and still nothing, you might get a bucket of water and pour it on to wake up. Yeah. And that's how I kind of see this, that we're getting these, you know, or what you're describing, that the ball is rolling down the hill, and... Over here, we can maybe stop it, but down there, it's getting worse and bringing more. And, um, so that's kind of how I view these. It, it takes a lot to get our attention. Yeah. It takes a lot. Yeah. But there's also the opportunity at each point to turn it around. To turn around, yeah. to do chuva. Because the and reason we get it repeated is, and if that isn't enough. Right. And if that isn't enough to turn your behavior, and, and I have to tell you, when I think about climate change, and our greed and our consumption that have led to climate change, I really do think to myself, what is it going to take? What is it going to take? Like, I honestly don't know what it's going to take for us to get it, and I include myself in it. I don't know. But it's... There you go. Thank you, Laura, for that demonstration of... Right? How much, if you watched our movie at Hanukkah, by the way, we... Um, the Tikkun Olam Committee has tied Hanukkah to environmental um, causes, right? That one cruise of oil should last eight times as long as it does um, right now. Um, and so we showed a film here uh, about coal mining, right? Mining coal in order to keep these lights on. So much of our energy comes from coal, we don't even realize how much. And, you know, when you realize what it's done to these cities and towns and their children and how sick their children are from the sludge that now contaminates everything, um, when you look at the condition of their lives and then they they shoot like Times Square, it's like... Oh, my God. You know, and then one of the people who lives in that town that has been completely decimated by this mining, um, mountaintop you know, mining, comes to Times Square. And there's just tears like streaming down her face as she looks around asking, why? Are, why, why do we need that, right? And so it's like, what is it going to take to wake us up to that every time you light a billboard like that, a child is deprived of their health. When, when are we going to make the connection? What's it going to take? I, I honestly don't It reminds don't. me of a, I mean, this old, this text reminds me of a teacher, like a kindergarten teacher that first, it was almost like you were saying, but then the bribe almost, okay, now if everybody does this, then we're going to take that long recess. And then the next one, but if you don't do this, if even one person steps out of line, you know, we don't go to recess for this many times. And then it was the next, I think I went to punitive schools, it was like the next and the next. You know, so you were watching for everybody else trying to hold that kid next to you that was going to pull out of line. And you were all kind of holding together to keep everybody behaving so you didn't get that punishment. Which is something that that as much as we want to differentiate our theology from biblical theology, it is something I believe we have lost, is the collective so sense of... That's right, that we no longer feel like we can even discuss. Freedom has been taken, taken to such an extent that we no longer feel we can even discuss each other's behavior, right, without... Well, wait, oh, wait, but that's... Her choice—that's his choice, right? And it's a—it's a—it's a real challenge that we no longer collectively understand our responsibilities to 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 changing each other's behavior. I'm a parent educator, and one of the um, one of the posters that I use is "Why do we have to make children feel worse in order to have them behave better?" And so 
our, my, the consequence portion of the, of the course that I teach is really about how do we positive, and, and communication and relationships, all about how do we positively motivate? How do we positively reinforce? And when you do that, it makes people, the, the energy is just more positive, and it makes people want to do better. Um, and so this, is, this negativity is, I don't really understand why it has to come from that negative place. Instead of, you know, people, like if you talk about, okay, let's look at what the world is doing well, Let's look at what we let's look at the good people and let those people start let the good feed the good and start banding together. I, mean, I don't know if you've seen the movie I Am, Tom Shady Act. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's that kind of feeling of you know let's because when we all band together and come together for a you know Sunday, the fourth of of May to do a big Sunday thing and. Make a mitzvah, and, and everybody's in here folding blankets, and everybody's feeling good. And it's like, and then we take the bags in our car to give to the homeless, and then it. Why can't why can't it spread from a more positive? It it, it does start that way with all yeah, the blessings. If you follow their very my thoughts, to me there are two abundant blessings. I'm not talking about. I'm sorry. I'm not talking about. It's like instead of saying if you don't do this, it's not. But it's like if you don't do this, then it's. It just goes so negative, and it's going to get more negative, and it's going to get more punitive. It doesn't work. I mean, I was a district attorney. I tell you, I worked in the jail system. It doesn't work. Right, Ruth is trying to say something. I don't know. Ruth is talking. I, I think that many people are more motivated by fear than they are by blessings. Like good feelings? Certainly, fear is one way to wheel people together into a group. And you just have to look at the history of the United States with each wave of immigration. There has been fear about the new immigrants that are coming. They will take away jobs. They will blah, 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 blah. And there is collective fear that is engendered very often by people who want to wield it for their own purposes as a source of power. And that's that's the problem, is that, and then it divides us instead of unites us. I think it's the way our brain is wired uniquely that we react to fear stronger than we react to things that are safe, because we don't have to react to things that are safe. If something threatens us, we react. If something's safe, we don't have it. So, so it's the way our brain, I mean, it's a way of learning. It's so interesting to hear you speaking because my son who's in 10th grade just asked me the other day, Mom, what do you think is a bigger motivator, fear or love? Because he said, could you know the teachers I'm afraid for? Uh, I work hard. <laughs> and um, and we talked about it. And, you know, I, there's this whole field of positive psychology now that talks about how we are programmed to respond to that it's an ancient, kind of the ancient part of our brains um, because it was a survival technique. You know, if you were afraid, you ran faster. And if you, if there was some real ultimate threat in the horizon. But the idea of positive psychology is trying to turn it around to where people are motivated by love and to start kind of developing the other parts of our brain. The idea being that our brains have not evolved as fast as our social consciousness. Um, so anyway, we had this whole conversation about it, but he still said to me at the end, but you know what, it's Linda? the professors that scare me that make me work hard. <laughs> but you know what, because the, 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 can I tell you what the problem with that is? Because he hasn't been taught how to intri- be intrinsically motivated. Right. He's working for the professor instead of for himself. And if he had been taught, I mean, I think that it's true. Right. If he had been, if he was in an environment, see, my kids are in an environment where they are not scared at all of their teachers at all, and and they work really hard because it makes them feel good inside. The results that they get, and they are in a home where they're positively reinforced. Because they feel good about what they've done. When they bring me something and go, Mom, what do you think? I say, what do you think? How does that make you feel about how you worked on that? So, so one of the things, one of the things were, so a couple of things. One is, hopefully, our brains will continue to evolve. And hopefully, we will continue to influence that in a way that we will 
more and more be motivated and rewarded intrinsically for the good and the safe and the loving and the positive and the joyful. What we're leaving out of the equation is human greed. And greed drives most of the inequity in this world. And it is a very real motivator for many people, us included, and our desire for ease and comfort and pleasure, our willingness to do whatever we need to to acquire that drives a lot of behavior that is destructive. So when we talk about fear or love, which is more powerful, the co- it's sort of, that's one part of the conversation, but the other conversation is what will what will effectively challenge greed? And right now, it's not love. Mm-hmm. Right now, hopefully, we are moving in that direction. Hopefully, our limbic system will catch up. But right now, even I would say, greed is not challenged enough yet by commitment to things like sharing our abundance equitably. We want our SUVs more than we want other people to be able to live healthfully in a town where there's strip mining. That's the reality that we're dealing with as a human society. It's sad and it's scary and it's real. And those of us who believe that there is another way to do it continue to engage with these texts and in these conversations to try to get at how can we motivate our community anyway? That's what we can start with is us. You know, how can we motivate ourselves and our community to start challenging, right, the norms of behavior that are so inherently destructive? And which we generally don't talk about. I, I think about things like the greed, not even at the highest level, but our desire for comfort and air conditioning. We don't think about, I mean, it doesn't even, oh, right, that's electricity. But I'm hot, and it's just this one day. Or let's go to the mob because it's cold there, and what it takes to cool that space. There are things that we don't think of as being excessive they're not they're just they're part of our every day and so those kinds of things keeping you know but I drive a Prius but you could walk you could what kind of sacrifice is required to stop whatever is maybe unstoppable now with our climate in that context but can I can I just step back a second because I actually wouldn't agree that it's greed I would agree that it's lack of education I did not know. I did not know that driving my SUV is killing some kids in the. I didn't know that. And so, I mean, right in general, I think it's education. All of us living in this, you know, this world, we're all unless we go to a log cabin somewhere and grow our own food, we're all contributing to the problem. So, right. So so when we when it's about somebody far away there are things we don't know. But when we're but 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 it doesn't take a lot of education in many parts of this world to know that what I'm doing is horribly destructive to the village next door. What so I mean we even when it's direct it it still ha- happens. It's still Happening, like just look at many places in, on the planet that are so. And we know there's forty thousand foster kids in LA. It's right here, and we we don't we don't change enough to make sure that all those kids have food and shelter hey, and hey, education and loving homes. Can I just tell you, Mindy, You know, Mindy Friedman, who's a member of this community, put together a giving circle this past year that I was involved with. There were 20 women. We all gave a certain amount of money. There was a much bigger pot to give at the end. We, one of our, um, one of the organizations that submitted was CASA, the court-appointed special advocates who helped the foster children. 20 more people were um, informed, not 20, because some of us knew about it, but 
10 of the people that were in there found out more. I was on the due diligence committee. I went down to CASA. I found out way more than I didn't know. I'm probably going to be, not probably, I am going to become a CASA. I'm just not sure when. Mm -hmm. There were people that we then had the giving, so, you know, I went to the fundraiser. So no one doubts the impact. Nobody doubts the impact of good work. I'm talking about. 100%. And. Getting, you know, getting an an A on your math exam. And people don't, even people who know, don't, I'm just, it's interesting. The conversation is interesting. I'm not sure why I'm digging in. I'm not sure, but I'm digging in because. I, I'm not as optimistic as you are about if we know we will change our behavior. I believe our greed and our desire for comfort and having more, even when we know what that causes, does not motivate us to change. And I'm not suggesting that we need to go to fear and terror to do that. I am very worried about the state of the discussion. Even that that we're sitting here, lovely. Uh, is, is this happening? Like, wh- where are we really having discussions that motivate us to do, to behave differently? This is how Torah did it. I'm not saying we should go back to that, but I'm I'm not as confident as I you are, that, Nicole. When we had that no. left, hey, hang on, oh, Nicole. I just I just wanted to say, you know, in life, the medium where, you know, people usually end up finding their answers, you know, should you motivate by fear or positivity? Well, maybe the medium, maybe a little of both. And and I do think that education, like, I didn't know. I, I, I know, I consider myself a well-educated woman, but I didn't know that there is an amount of plastic in the ocean that is the size of the state of Texas, I had no idea, no idea. And now I'm sitting here saying, well, okay, what what can we do in our society when we go to the grocery store not to put the mushrooms in, I mean, the bags are right there. So it's like our society has to change also on a higher level as well as on an individual level because how do we, in everyday reality, you're saying, you know, it's not, it's, it's comforts are more motivating than caring about the, the town with the coal. Well, okay, but also, if we want to make a change, we need a change in our environment. So when we go to the grocery store, how do we collect our vegetables? How do we do that without plastic? Because that's what it takes. You can't have those round plastic things anymore. <laughs> right, so I mean, so the... Right, so individually we have to care enough to start yeah, but also agitating for collective change, 100%. But it also has to be education too. 100%. No one's arguing that we don't need to be educated, believe me. But, and 100%. 100%. But wait, if you look at the market, going back to your point, they now no longer give plastic bags. And in fact, if you want to buy a paper bag, you have to buy it for 10 cents, right? Which is sure. motivating because you talk about the greed. That no, you do have plastic. Just talking yeah. about I know what you're talking about, but I'm saying now at the checkout. But what I'm saying is this this to me, and I was in a conference with Dr. Dan Siegel at UCLA who talks about the we. There's me and there's you and there's on the me and the we and the we. And we have to all be a collective conscious. And so there's there's people who are recognizing this and part of that, and that's part of what I'm saying. And so I stood up in a room of a thousand people and I said, listening to you is depressing because what can I, me, little person, me, do for the, all of these ills in the world? And he said, don't ask how you can save the world. Ask how you can serve the world. It's very clear. We've known this for 3,000 years. Okay. We've known this for 3,000 years. You, you must start with your life. Right. And so every little and thing, just serves. say that. And then there's a ripple. Hopefully it has a ripple. Right. So. Just so we're going to come back to the, the text. Just really quick. Even when the temple had this thing about six months ago, one of the speakers argued there was no global warming. Right. So that was half of the program. Here at the temple? Here at the temple. There's a U.S. senator who said that just the other day. So I just thought, you know, state. So every education had been used in multiple ways. Right. So going back to Margot's... Uh, question about the Shema. 
I've given you, because it is related, it's a similar text, I've given you um, Rabbi Arthur Waskow's Shema, but I want to look first at the second page of your packet. At the bottom of the second page of your packet, you'll see Bechukotai, right? The beginning of Bechukotai. This is the Torah commentary on our Parsha by Rabbi Rami Shapiro. And I can't find it anywhere else anymore. It's from long ago, yes. Um, and, and I treasure it, so I'm sharing it with you. So it's, it's weirdly laid out, I apologize. But again, I don't know where to find it. So somebody begin reading at If You Follow My Law. If you follow my law and faithfully observe my commandments, I will grant your rains in their seasons so that the earth shall yield its produce and the trees of the field bear fruit. I will grant peace in the land and you shall lie down untroubled by anyone. I will establish my abode in your midst midst and I will not spurn you. I will be ever present in your midst. I will be your God and you shall be my people. Drop down to why is there suffering? Why is there suffering in the world? Because we have forsaken and the way that is holiness. There are two types of suffering in the world. Natural and unnecessary. Natural is suffering that which arises from the way of nature. Even if we could eliminate all carcinogens, even if we could cease to promote illness through our diet and our lifestyle, still there would be old age, disease, death. Still there would be suffering. But how much of what ails us physically, emotionally, spiritually is not of nature but of our own making. This is unnecessary suffering. This is suffering produced by greed, pride, jealousy, hatred. This is suffering that arises because we have forgotten unity and imagine that we are adrift and at war in a hostile world. The land knows no boundaries. The earth has no politics. Continents wage no wars. We do these things. And they seem natural to us. They seem to be rational responses to the world we find all about us. But they are not natural. They are perverted and make sense only in the perverted world we have created for ourselves. Go on. Oh, right. Somebody else want to read our Parsha? Our Parsha is not telling us that God is petty, follow me or else. It is telling us that the world is orderly, follow the orders or, or else. An analogy can be found in nature. Water has a current, flow with it, and it will carry you effortlessly along. Fight it, and it will exhaust you, and you will drown. Torah is telling us that life is the same. It has a current, a way. Follow it and it will sustain you. Fight it and it will kill you. The choice is yours. For me, Rami is always the place I come back to whenever I get stuck in duality, whenever I get stuck in this way or that way, yes, no, positive, negative, fear, love. Whenever I get stuck, I can always come back to Rabbi Rami Shapiro, who's so beautifully for me roots it all in unity capital U. That reality capital R is unity capital U. And when we try to pull them apart, right, we get into all kinds of head stuff and trouble. Um, it's, it and it will hmm? Fight it and it will kill you. Right? Right, exactly right. Um, tur- turn to the back page. Choose the way of harmony, interdependence, and you will find peace even in the midst of strife. Choose the way of arrogance and discord, and you will find misery even in the midst of joy. You shall flee though none pursues. Is there a greater punishment than this? 
those who imagine the world to be other than they, those who see only the stranger, sense only their own estrangement. They are pursued in their own minds, in their own hearts. In fact, there is only reality, only the unity of I and thou and the oneness of yud heh vav But if we imagine it otherwise and live out our fictions, we will imagine the stranger, imagine the pursuer, imagine ourselves pursued. And we will be pursued, pursued by our own fear and greed and ignorance. We cannot escape this pursuit, and while it is still While it is all of our own making, it will destroy whatever happiness was to be our lot. Let's look at Rabbi Arthur Waskow. An interpretation of the Shema by Rabbi Waskow for the 21st century. Somebody want to read? Shema, an interpretation for the 21st century. Shema Israel, listen, your God wrestlers. Pause from your wrestling and hush, shush, shush. Is that right? Mm-hmm. To read, to hear. Can you say that? Yeah, just say yeah. Yeah. Here in the stillness, the still voice, the still breathing that intertwines life. Yeah, Eloheinu, breathe of life is our God. What unites all the varied forces creating all worlds into oneness? Each breath unique and all unified. Ya Achad, Ya is one. Listen, you God wrestlers. No one, pe- no one people alone owns this unity force. Ya is one. So is the gates of our cities, where your own culture ends and another begins, and you halt there in fear. Here we speak the same language, but not. But out there is barbaric. They may kill without speaking. Then pause in the gateway to write on its wall and to chant chant in its passage. Each gate is unique in the world that is one. If you listen, yes, listen to the teachings of Yudhe the one breath of life, that the world is one and all its parts intertwined, then the rains will fall time by time. Time by time. The rivers will run, the heavens will smile, the good earth will fruitfully feed you. But chop the world into parts and choose parts to worship gods of race or of nation, gods of wealth and of power, gods of greed and addiction. If you do and you make and produce without pausing, if you do without being, then the rain will not fall or will turn to sharp acid. The rivers won't run or flood homes and cities. The heavens themselves will take arms against you. The ozone will fail you. The oil that you burn will scorch your whole planet. And from the good earth that the breath of life gives you, you will vanish. Yes, perish. So on the edge with yourself, Take care to weave fringes, threads of connection. So you end not with sharpness, a fence, or a wall, but with sacred mixing of cloth and of air, a fringe that is fuzzy, part yours and part God's. They bind us together, make one from our oneness, good fringes, good neighbors, deep mirrors, true seeing I'm also going to give you a Devar Tzedek and uh, a commentary by Rabbi Lawrence Hoffman um, talking about the theology of this Pasha but I want to give you the Devar Tzedek from AJWS, American Jewish World Service. Which goes to our question of do we understand... Uh-oh. Oh, is it missing a page? We didn't get oh, no. 
Yeah, our machine has an interesting orientation. It's Hebrew. Yes, it's Jewish. It's backwards. So we looked at that word kamumiut, right? We looked at that word about walking, standing upright. So drop down to where it says a midrash explains. Like third, fourth paragraph. Yes. Explains that the word kamumiut upright which appears only this once in Torah, means with a straight spine and unafraid of any creature. In other words, God reminds the Israelites that they're no longer oppressed slaves living in fear, but rather dignified people who can stand tall and walk proudly and are free to choose their own paths. The Israelites' ability to walk upright which they obtained through their experience of the Exodus, was a necessary precondition for the other walkings described previously in the text, walking in accordance with God's laws and God's reciprocal walking among the people, bestowing upon them the blessings of rain, food, peace, and fertility. More? Yep. These biblical walkings are clearly metaphor for dignity and the covenantal relationship between God and the Israelites. But around the world today, there are many who are literally walking to school, to fetch water and firewood, to escape conflict, persecution, or natural disasters, in search of blessings like those God promised to the Israelites. Unfortunately, Many of us who go on foot in the world face significant obstacles, not yet liberated from their own Egypt's poverty, marginalization, and oppression. They struggle to walk. So this idea of coming out of our sense of what we have, what we've been given, that we as a people understand that the goal is to extend that to all peoples in all places, in all situations. Um, for me, part of the greatest gift of the Jewish people to the world, to the Western world, for sure, um, and something that I am deeply, deeply proud of um, as a Jew, that, that this is our foundational piece of Torah, is that because we have that, we should work to make sure that it happens for everybody else. And that we understand ourselves, as we saw in our text, having been liberated from that state of oppression and marginalization and suffering, that is where we start our story, really, our people's narrative. I know Genesis is our, our patriarchal stories, but our real story as a people is, begins in Egypt and in suffering, and that we understand that empathy and compassion are possibly the strongest motivators there are for change. So I'm going to close with the words of Rabbi Shefa Gold, who talks about um, the inner state of suffering or not suffering and good, bad, heaven, hell, blessing, curse, that it's an inner state as much as anything. She says, if it is truly the inner circumstance that matters, why do we struggle to change the world, to alleviate outer sufferings, to bring peace, to heal the afflicted? The spiritual challenge of Bechukotai is to do this work not from anger or fear, but from the purity of our compassion. When we are rooted in the place of heaven, the fullness of our compassion overflows. It becomes our natural way of being in the world. When we have recognized our own hell states, we know the suffering of others. We know what it's like so we can reach out from the place of heaven and offer a vision of the truth of our inheritance. We can simply radiate that truth and our presence will help transform the world. In the consciousness of heaven, it is impossible not to act from compassion. Our Shabbat practice, our study practice, 
uh, is about deepening our capacity for empathy, for compassion, that we might truly, as she says, live into um, heaven, creating, therefore, uh, heaven on this earth, not somewhere else. We are not a people who looks for it somewhere else, but here, that we should bring in progressive Judaism, we say, speedily and in our day, may we bring Yemea Mashiach, the days of the Mashiach, the Messianic age, because Aleinu, it is upon us. It is our right, our obligation, our human potential to heal what is wrong, to alleviate suffering, and to create uh, the possibility for every human child to reach and experience their own full potential. May our Shabbat practice bring that closer uh, to being, in fact, the case. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.